The Innovation Social Hour was due to be recorded in front of a live studio audience. However, due to the public health crisis, it was not. Therefore, most episodes were recorded under socially distanced conditions, and the audio quality may not be optimal. However, after a few episodes, we realized we could take off our mask, and the audio quality got somewhat better. So, bear with us. The audio is improving from episode to episode, and we thank you for your patience while you listen. Welcome to Innovation Social Hour, brought to you by UPS Capital. We're your hosts, Colleen Hackley and Corey Wright, both recovering accountants and now longtime supply chain aficionados. We both love to talk about innovation, entrepreneurialism, and entrepreneurialism. We're basically kids in a candy store because logistics and its innovation is in its heyday. Everything is going digital, and there's so much to talk about. Right, Corey? That's right, Colleen. While there's a ton of innovation happening right now in logistics and e-commerce, there's also a lot of innovation happening elsewhere. We are just as excited about rockets landing themselves as we are about the impacts of robotics and autonomous vehicles, and of course, what's happening with AI and machine learning. Now, the good news is our guests will be some of the greatest voices in innovation in these areas. They'll provide real and actionable insights about what they've built and where they've innovated, but also on talking about innovation itself, where ideas come from, how to get others on the same page with your ideas, and reflect on the difficult aspects of building something phenomenal. If this sounds like your kind of thing, subscribe to this podcast. Tune in and listen as Corey and I speak with fellow Blue Ocean seekers and business disruptors. Drinks optional, stories required. And there will be lots of stories to come from some fantastic guests. But if you're curious about the company that we both work for and not only supports, but challenges all of us to dream big and bring our ideas forward, check out UPS Capital at upscapital.com. Welcome back to the Innovation Social Hour. Today's guest on our episode is fantastic. She was an aspiring Rockette who actually got in trouble at Disneyland for doing one-handed cartwheels in the parade. But those experiences led her to ultimately influencing possibly the experiences that you have either dining in or more appropriately today, taking out or having food delivered to you um, for a very well-known national uh, food chain. So very excited to hear from Elizabeth Dixon. And Colleen, um, there's so much that Elizabeth, I think, is going to bring today in today's episode. Yes, there's going to be a lot of book recommendations coming your way, everyone. So please have your pen and paper ready. She has great insight and she likes to share and a lot of them comes through uh, book titles. So, so there you go. Also, she will be speaking very confidently about how to get others to see and buy into your vision, which is so hard to do in a business or a startup that is not, you know, maybe prone to innovation or a process. And I think that if that's where you're at, you're going to find some great hints in order to get moving along on the innovation pathway. So this is a great listen for all entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, and those that aspire to be innovators. Elizabeth Dixon is going to be bringing some wisdom bombs that she'll be dropping on you today. So without further ado, here's Elizabeth Dixon. 
Welcome back. I'm Corey Wright, joined by Colleen Hackley, and this is the Innovation Social Hour, brought to you by UPS Capital. And today we welcome Elizabeth Dixon. More than just a speaker, Elizabeth is a winsome corporate executive and serial entrepreneur who connects with executives and their teams, integrating strategy, innovation, leadership, and personal development in speeches that ignite conversation and inspire purposeful action. Elizabeth leads the service and hospitality strategy for Chick-fil-A and drives the strategic direction central to the company's exponential growth over the last six years. The hospitality think tank she leads propels leading customer and employee experience brands to the next level. Participating companies include Southwest Airlines, Drury Hotels, Fossil, and Zappos, just to name a few. So Elizabeth, certainly I want to say welcome to the Innovation Social Hour. It is really great to have you on today's show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Absolutely. So we do want to hear more about how you help drive strategy and innovation at Chick-fil-A and also how you've helped other brands um, grow and develop their innovation strategies. But we want to know more about you. So we want to go back to your 14-year-old self. So take us back to where you were, where your mindset was. And at that time, did you ever see yourself going down a path of being such an influential speaker and helping drive innovation and strategy for so many brands? No. I wanted to be a rocket. I wanted to dance in New York City as a rocket. When I was 10 years old, I was cast at Disney and danced in the parade and I danced in the Nutcracker. And that was my big aspiration was to be a performer and a dancer. And um, I had some hip issues that slowed me down. And I realized pretty quickly that that was not going to be the future for me. So no, I never thought I would be in this place. I'm so thankful I am. Mm -hmm. But originally, my 14 year old self was going to be a rocket. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So then take us from there from that 14 year old self thinking as a as a rocket, then kind of take us through that path. So what did you do after uh, high school? Where did you go and take us a little bit farther down that path from where your 14 year old self was to where you are today? Yes. So I went to a college in Virginia, in Lynchburg, Virginia, called Liberty University. And I remember having a pivotal conversation with my dad where I said, you know, what should I major in? At first, I was thinking counseling because I really loved helping people and I loved helping identify solutions for people. But I have a really deeply empathetic side and I realized quickly that I would probably be crying along with the people that I was trying to help and counsel. And so he asked me a great question. He said, what do you love doing? And as a former dancer who's now at college and isn't doing that same routine of dancing, I was realizing what most freshmen in college realize, which is around the freshman 15. And so something that I love doing was around exercising and taking care of the body. And he asked me a great follow-up question. He said, can you major in that? And I said, I can. <laughs> and so I chose exercise science as my major. Mm -hmm. And the principle in that is one that we hear all the time. If you do something you love, you never have to work another day in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was getting at for me when I was 18, 19 years old. And so exercise science was what I majored in. It started off my career. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the ways that I've expressed my abilities and skills have changed. Mm -hmm. um, but that was the starting point for me. Oh, excellent. And then you said you launched your career with exercise science. So was that your first, you know, job, let's say outside of college? Was it in exercise science? It was. I had started a 
small business while I was in college and then I did an internship with a company out in Dallas, Texas called Cooper Aerobics Centers. Mm -hmm. And they had built a relationship with a brand that I admired greatly, which was Mm Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A wanted to develop a wellness program. They didn't have one at the time. Mm -hmm. And so they brought me on to do that for them back in 2004. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's, it's a great story to, to hear that path. And I think that's one thing that a lot of our listeners draw inspiration from is to understand so many of our guests, they may have started in one direction, but as I like how you put it, as far as how you're able to, you know, learn new skills to express yourself in different ways that you found yourself being not only very good at exercise science, but then being very good at telling stories and inspiring others to do the same. So uh, we look forward to to hearing more about that story and how you leverage those skills um, here shortly. Fun! What what a great story! I didn't realize that that was the the path to over to Chick Fil A, but that is fantastic. Did you get a delivery yesterday, Elizabeth? I did. Grapefruit bubbly. Uh, we understand that has been on constant rotation uh, during quarantine right now. We also threw in some fresh fruit. Like, what do we put in there? Like lemon and some grapefruit okay there you go because i don't know about you i have to change it up sometimes i like to jazz it up we appreciate you coming on and uh, kicking back and talking about these topics that are near and dear to us and because we do love all things innovation we we do kind of dive into the the drink story a little bit because there's always a cool story as to like where it came from the inventors whatever it might be so Let's go down into the rabbit hole of the history of sparkling water. I was actually very surprised by how interesting it was. Um, And I I promise it'll be interesting for you too. So, um, of course, for centuries, alcoholic drinks, not that what we're having right here, but alcoholic drinks such as wine, beer, champagne, they were all well carbonated through the process of fermentation. But our fun bubbly drinks here, it's thought that the first person to aerate water with carbon dioxide was William Brownrig in 1740, which I think, I don't know, I thought it was more modern, but in 1740. But the thing is, the guy never published a paper around that, so he couldn't claim it, which is kind of a thing with innovation, right? Sometimes Right? Okay. But then there's a guy, Joseph Priestley. He invented carbonated water independently. And this is what I think was so interesting by accident in 1767. So this guy, um, Joseph Priestley, has been credited with the discovery of oxygen. Um, And then there's two other guys that actually discovered oxygen through science, scientific, through the scientific method, but they, again, they didn't lay claim to it. So Carl Wilhelm Scheele and Antoine Lavoisier. I'm very sorry that those guys didn't write their their papers. But anyway, so this guy uh, is um, through accidental discovery. He discovered a method of infusing water with carbon dioxide after having suspended a bowl of water above a beer vat at a brewery in Leeds, England. <laughs> And then in his paper, he wrote, I thought this was hilarious. He wrote of the peculiar satisfaction he found in drinking it. And, and in 1772, he published a paper entitled Impregnating Water with Fixed Air. <laughs> <laughs> of, of note, um, this gentleman dedicated the paper to the Right Honorable John Earl of Sandwich, 
also the eponymous inventor of the sandwich. So, so while Priestley is regarded as the father of the soft drink, sadly, he did not benefit financially from it. And he, so he necessarily did not make him famous, but in fact, he did make history. That Very cool. Fascinating. And I don't think I will ever enjoy a sip of carbonated water quite the same again. <laughs> That's it, right. It changed me forever as well. So don't forget, as we're drinking this, we can say we're enjoying the peculiar satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Now, is that is that All the right. bubbly or is that just the podcast that's uh, driving the peculiar satisfaction? Right. It's 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 not the bubbly talking. <laughs> it's it's this episode. But uh, yeah, well, here here's a here's a cheers to uh, to you, Elizabeth, um, to all you've accomplished. And for thank you again for coming on our show. Well, cheers. cheers. Thank you, guys. It's so creative and fun. <laughs> Yeah, we, we learned all sorts of things through this. Uh, we both are dedicated lifelong learners. So um, we would love to lo- uh, have our listeners learn a little bit more about you and your role, your current role at Chick-fil-A. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So specifically, I work in the area of strategy for service and hospitality. So what in the world does that mean? So when I think about strategy, I think about the very concise uh, question of how will we win? So in service and hospitality, which is how you order, how you get your food, how you're treated in the process, that is what I think about that space. I think about how will we win at that into the future? So against ourselves, against competitors, whether that be in our industry or just expectations that rise from customers because of brands outside of our industry. And so I think a lot about the next three to five plus years and what we need to be working on and prepared for in order to stay relevant in meeting customer needs and truly you know, winning in our space. Wonderful. Okay. So within your um, within your wheelhouse at Chick-fil-A, so how how are they how do they ask you to bring innovation forward? So our customers demand it, truly. I mean, they want a better, more seamless, frictionless, personalized experience. So I would say that our customers call on us to bring innovation forward. Needs are continually evolving and you're either growing or you're dying. I love how Lou Holtz has said that in the past, that anything is either growing or dying. There's really nothing in between. And so we're constantly challenging ourselves internally at Chick-fil-A to become better at meeting the needs of our customers and serving them in a way that makes their lives better and makes a difference to them. And, you know, we've been really blessed to be in a place within our industry where we are leading. But one part that's really important for us is we often you know, we might be up by two points, but we're going to play like we're down by 10. Mm-hmm. And so constantly staying scrappy and competing against ourselves, competing against the potential of what could be and what could disrupt us. Because most of our industries, the reality is, is that we're just one disruption away from um, having to completely reinvent and completely innovate and evolve from who we are. So that's an important part for us, for sure. Absolutely. And you mentioned customers being, you know, something that's very important that you listen to. And so customers can be uh, a source of, of not only innovation, but also the ideas behind those innovations. You know, in addition to customers, you know, where do the ideas come from at Chick-fil-A? Do you have formalized process that really help drive 
ideation? And then how, what is, do you have a formal process to move from idea to a formalized, uh, you know, attempts at innovation? Yes, absolutely. So specifically from a process standpoint, we listen intently to our customers. Every time you get one of those uh, receipts that says, if you fill this out, you'll get a free chicken sandwich. Like we really want to hear about that Mm -hmm. because we collect that feedback, um, any ideas that could be on there. We collect that, consider that we have a strong voice of operator. So our restaurant business is a little bit different than the traditional franchise operation. And our founder, Truett Kathy, built that from the very beginning. And so with that, our operator voice is extremely important to us. And so we're constantly incorporating voice of operator, just like we're incorporating voice of customer. And then the third main voice is voice of team member. So we have about 160,000 team members that are on the front lines of Chick-fil-A's right now in the drive throughs probably not very many at the front counters at this moment specifically, but um, they are the front lines and they are where the best ideas come from and they're where the ideas truly get tested. And so making sure that we have a very strong voice of team member that's incorporated into our work is critical. And then from a support center standpoint, our innovation process is very much design thinking. We built that out probably about eight years ago, really started to focus on having a specific innovation process. It's a decentralized approach in the company. So there's an expectation that every group that's innovating is going to follow this innovation process. Um, But the innovation team itself is quite small, and they're focused on equipping all of the designers and teams across the business to be sure that they are trusting the process, leaning into the process, Mm -hmm and following it. And the other thing I would say is just to where do these ideas come from? Once we're following that process, truly being curious, like asking good questions. There's a great book by Warren Berger that I read last year. He actually wrote two now that are really, really good about a more beautiful question. And so a big emphasis he makes in that book is asking what questions, you know, what could happen if, and what would I do if? Um, Asking really good what questions, being curious, wondering, pausing, you know, connecting unrelated dots. And even in a time like this, where many of us are working from home, it's fascinating to see some dots that you wouldn't normally have. Example, when you're having a Fisher Price tea party at lunchtime (laughs) with your five-year-old and you wouldn't have been before, some really fascinating things can come and five-year-olds say some pretty amazing, smart, great ideas. Um, And so being able to connect those dots and thinking in different ways, I think the curiosity piece and asking questions is really critical for where great ideas come from. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And you mentioned something important, which is kind of that natural curiosity and the ability to listen and connect dots. Some people are really good at that naturally and other people, you know, that is a learned behavior. So at Chick-fil-A, do you guys connect, uh, you know, innovation with mentorship or entrepreneurship or or how do you help foster that? Because you mentioned, you know, all the way to the front lines with your service employees, all the way to the operators, to the customers. How, do you try to build that in and try to build that as a competency or, or what are ways that you try to draw out innovation through mentorship or other other aspects? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Mm-hmm. 
we have what we call innovation coaches. And so they are individuals who have led a project through the innovation process successfully, have done it well, and then they get additional resources and training and coaching. And they are embedded all throughout the organization. And so those coaches are available and accessible when you get stumped, when you get to a hard point in the innovation process, because it's not always easy. It's not always smooth. And so that has been a really great way to mentor, give additional opportunity within the company, but then also help set that example and help be more accessible to those who are leading new work through the innovation process. Right. Absolutely. That's fantastic. You know, I wanted to, to draw out one, one, one thing that you were just talking about. So well, actually there are so many good things. Like I, I have one myself though. <laughs> just- <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. So, um, when you challenge yourself to compete against yourself, this is really important because, <laughs> It's not a novel concept, but I can tell you, I'm, not a lot of companies do that, so that you're unique in that. So when you compete against yourselves, what kind of questions, you know, where, where do you lead that conversation? And like, what kind of questions do you all use to really bring forth uh, thought processes and challenge each other? Yeah, that's great. So thinking about questions like, what is it that our customers aren't saying, but they want? Um, I'm probably going to botch it, but the Henry Ford question of if I gave, you know, my customers what they were asking for, they would have asked for a faster horse. So we find that customers can't always tell us what they want, but they can certainly react Mm. to something when we give it to them. And so we ask ourselves questions of where do we feel like we're not as good as we could be? Where do we feel like we could add more value to the customer without necessarily having to increase prices? Where can we make the life of our team members easier? What are the worst jobs? Like we have a ranking of like the hardest jobs. And it's not that our team members complain. They tend to be like really positive people. But when we say like, no, 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 really, like what is really the hardest? Like nobody wants to do it. then they'll actually start talking and, you know, and they'll be honest. And so we go, okay, well, how can we make that better? How can we add more value? And, you know, there's many companies that I've interfaced with that the question is more of like, how can we extract value? How can we get more out of our customers? How do we get more? But I think when you flip it and you start asking the question of like, how can we actually give more value? Then your mind opens up. And ultimately, as our founder always said, if you help people get what they want, what's going to add value to them, like they will help make you successful. And so thinking about how do we add value? How do we make it better? And I think it's very forward focused when we're just focused on competition of like, oh, you know, what are they doing? And then how do we copy that or beat them to it? It's not the same kind of race, but we like to think about, okay, how can we push ourselves to go faster and further for the sake of our customers, trusting that over time it will work out to the benefit of the business? That's interesting. Okay, wonderful. So you've had the opportunity to be part of many notable organizations some very large brands too. Uh, is the innovation process different depending on the company? 
Yes. I think that all of them, when I think about it, have a very similar principle of the intention. The brands that I've spent the most time with all have a heart to make others better, to add value to others. The ones that have a different mentality of extracting value, I just get less interested and less excited in working with. But I think it's it's best summed up by my first employer. So we talked about Cooper Aerobic Center out in Dallas. Um, Dr. Cooper was the father of preventative medicine. So back in the 60s and 70s, he was saying we can anticipate where people's health is and we can prevent disease from happening. And he got a ton of pushback and flack from his counterparts saying that that was pretty crazy. But he always said, if you could find a need and you meet it, then your people are going to make you successful. And so I think that principle and intention is very similar throughout the different brands and different companies. I think all of them have a have a clear emphasis on continuous improvement. You know, Truett, our founder at Chick-fil-A, was inventive until the end. He was in his 90s and he was convinced that what the world needed was a really good Hawaiian restaurant. And so he built a Hawaiian restaurant called Truett's Luau, which recently blew up on TikTok over the quarantine. And um, it was pretty insane. People were driving states away to get the sweet potato fries and some of the really delicious Hawaiian Chick-fil-A style food. But he, he was so inventive and it didn't just stop in 1946. He stayed that way to the end. And so I think the most inventive companies, there's a continuous improvement that starts with the founder and just that scrappiness, um, is really, really critical and important. There's a book called uh, The Founder's Mentality that's really good about that. And it's when businesses move from that scrappy to being more of that bureaucracy, you start to lose uh, a lot of the innovation and that cutting edge ability. Um, I think all of the brands I've worked with have great guardrails. So they have great principles of intention. They have a focus on continuous improvement that starts with the founder and then clear guardrails. So I mentioned I worked with Disney when I was younger. And in the part I played in the parade, I would do a cartwheel at one point. Well, during the Christmas parade, I did the typical like two-handed cartwheel. Well, at Easter, I just was like, I got to you know spice this up. And I started doing one-handed cartwheels. And I... I was asked to please stop. Like after two parades of doing one-handed cartwheels, they were like, your character doesn't do one-handed cartwheels. And so we're going to need you to take it back to two. And so I think all of them also have clear guardrails, which is important because there are some things that should never change. There are some things that always need to be true and are a part of that brand for consistency and heritage and authenticity. And then there's a huge space that can continually be edited. Um, Our CEO today at Chick-fil-A often says, marry the mission and date the methods. And so be committed to the things that should never change, but then be super flexible and innovative on the things that should change. So those I think are all the same the words of what phase of innovation you're in, I think you can put different descriptors with it, but the heart and essence of it is very similar of let's start with understanding. Let's you know anticipate what the future of this solution could be. Let's test it out. Let's fail fast. Then let's put it out there to a larger audience and then ultimately 
launch it to the field. And so I think you can put different descriptions with those phases, but a lot of it remains to be true throughout the brands that are really great at innovation. Mm-hmm. That is great. I feel like we need to join your book club. I know. You have to, you, <laughs> right, I'm, I'm making notes. I'm jotting down title. as we go. <laughs> I love, love reading. I definitely love reading. That's right. Great. Thank you. So let's, you touched on this earlier, but let's talk about the impact of COVID. So you just touched on, obviously, many companies, you know, you have these different methods, processes, pipelines for innovation and different ways to vet. And that all works in a normal, you know, normal fiscal year, normal operating cycle. But then all of a sudden we wake up one day and we find that there's a public health crisis that then spreads to an economic impact to then political disruption. And all of a sudden you find that maybe what was at the top of the list is now not to your, your choosing, but it's just thrown out the window. And now you have to find yourself in, a, in an opportunity to not only just survive, but to now compete and win. So how has COVID and the recent impacts uh, from regulation put on Chick-fil-A and forced you to either double down on innovation or potentially pause innovation or to respond to that. So maybe just talk us through, um, you know, kind of where we've been for the, I guess we're, we're still in March, right? I think we're in still in March, but, uh, for the, it feels like it sometimes. that's right. So for the last 90 days, you know, maybe just talk through the impact of COVID on innovation at Chick-fil-A. Yeah, I was really impressed with how we as an organization responded. Um, we haven't been through something like this as a world, right? in a long time, Mm -hmm. at least. Um, So it was really interesting to get to observe and watch how we all responded. And it was kind of like everybody was on a stage and nobody knew what the script was. So (laughs) super interesting time to learn. And I'd actually talked with my dad around that time, thinking about in a role of strategy and anticipating the future, Mm -hmm. how can I do this well in a time where we have way more questions than we have answers? And he said something really interesting. He said, Elizabeth, never waste a good crisis. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's that's really offensive, Dad. Like, how do you put <laughs> right. in crisis in the same sentence? But what's unique is that he walked through 9-11 leading an aviation company. Mm-hmm. And he truly walked through the painful part of taking a company that was heavily impacted by a crisis. And he said, here's the deal, Elizabeth. There's powerful, powerful opportunity that's going to rise if you see it. But the problem is, is that most of the time you're so focused on the challenge that you completely miss the opportunity. He said, so open your eyes, take notes, write a lot down, observe what people are saying, what they're not saying, and then be ready because this will not be the last crisis. Mm -hmm. And if you pay really good attention, then you're going to be prepared when the next crisis comes. Mm -hmm. So I was like, whoa, all right, dad. (laughs) And so I really did. I was taking notes. I have a one note file called crisis and I would write down every time something went really well or really backfired what happened. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about others. I learned a lot about crisis in the process. And so when we think about innovation in a season of crisis, 
our team of service and hospitality had the spotlight on. We have an incredible leader who led us so well through the process. But when you think about how you order, how you get your food and how you're treated in the process, that was going to cause us to live or die Mm -hmm. as it was one of the elements that was going to cause us to live or die as a business. And so Thankfully, we had really great foundations in delivery and in digital, which allowed us to make some pivots, mm-hmm. reuse our, our lot space of the parking lot and the drive-through to add lanes for the drive-through, to add spaces mm-hmm. for third-party delivery, operator-led delivery, and then focus on curbside ordering mm-hmm. so that we could have four major channels where customers could get their Chick-fil-A food. And for many, honestly, what our customers told us was that we were a symbol of normalcy for them, that in a time that was very disruptive, I think we all found some comfort in food and in some of the things that were normal because there was so much that was not normal. And so it was important for us to figure out how to do that. So we had to double down. How do we keep our team members safe outside? How do we keep our customers safe outside? How can we make sure that we're being as efficient and effective as possible? How can we serve third-party delivery drivers well in this season? And so we had to be very uh, fast. Things that we might do every quarter, we were doing every day. And so, again, very impressed at how Chick-fil-A as an organization we responded. But it definitely was a season of doubling down, getting the solutions that customers, team members, and operators needed, and removing any of the you know, as uh, someone once said, sideways energy. Sometimes in organizations, we have this sideways energy. You're not being moved forward at all. You're just kind of like, you know, the bureaucracy kind of world of um, making making decisions take longer than they really need to. We ripped that out fast and made really streamlined ways for decisions to be made and uh, resources to get to the field fast. So it was a, an exhausting season for sure, but one that was absolutely worth it and we learned a lot from. Yeah. Colleen, you, you're on mute real quick. Apologies. No problem. Um, I just said something very fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, there's so much, uh, uh, so much truth there though about like the routine, um, having some like a bright spot in the day, even if it's just to go out to get the lemonade at a Chick-fil-A, you know what I mean? Um, because there's, there's drudgery, you know, it, it just, there's so much of this groundhog day thing that is fatiguing people. Um, and it, it is nice to kind of be that brand that is the bright spot in people's day. And um, to be able to execute, I think what you all have done quickly, because, you know, like with my, with my kids, I I just really want to make, I mean, I'm not taking them into any places. I'm, I'm just very like protective of them that way right now. I mean, whatever, but um, they will come with me in the car. My 14 year old will hang out, you know, with the, with the younger one. But um, so I'll notice and I'll point stuff out, like, do you see how they're staging their company outside in that parking lot? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm like, that started with the process. That started with, you know, figuring out how to, I mean, if you don't, there's no way people could get in. And, um, you know, we've done a, a number of curbside pickups, uh, you know, retail-wise, and, and it's just been phenomenal to see. But I think what you're, 
you're you're pointing out the sideways energy. And I love that. I love that mm-hmm. way to way to put it. But um, you have to get this stuff out quickly. You know, you have to kind of cut through the red tape. You have to make decisions quickly. And so, with some of these things, um, you know, with with COVID, uh, you know, you read a lot in the white papers and such that. Um, things that companies were going to do three to five years out, they're doing now. Yes. So it's like accelerated some things. So um, have you, have you noticed that, um, wow, some of this vision stuff we're actually like doing now. And, and how does that work when you're trying to articulate the vision and then it's starting to happen a lot faster and maybe you didn't do the pre-socialization stuff that you normally would do as a company? Oh, that's good. Absolutely. To your point, some of the things that we were thinking farther out into the future, very quickly, it was like, boom, teams are on it now. And you got 30 days. Here we go. Um, so I, when I think about vision, I think about a preferred future. And people change. We change. We change our minds. We change our behaviors so often around either pain or vision. And so when we can see it, when we can taste it, when we can feel it, when we can fully imagine what that preferred future, that vision is, then a lot of times we're going to do what it takes to make that change. Like people are going to change because they see this, what the potential of what could be. The other side is like when the chain, when the pain gets so bad, then we're willing to make a change. And we go, this isn't working anymore. We need a change right now. I used to see that all the time in health and wellness. A few people really wanted to follow the recommendations for exercise. It just wasn't compelling. 30 minutes, most days a week, like, nah, I don't want to do that. But suddenly when like their brother has a heart attack, the pain gets so bad of what could be that they will do whatever it takes. Or what we did at Chick-fil-A for a season was we would say, um, because, I mean, Chick-fil-A is a very generous company. Uh, When we were in wellness, we would say, who would like to take a lifetime trip to hike the Grand Canyon or to hike Pikes Peak? And you can bring your family. And people would get so excited. And the same people who had no desire to exercise You'd say, well, hey, in order to go, you're going to need to exercise probably four or five days out of the week for you know 30 minutes, probably even more to like an hour and a half towards the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Because the vision of what could be was so compelling to them that they wanted to go do it. And so pain and vision, the two things that really motivate people, well, when COVID hit, any preferred future, any vision that maybe wasn't fully felt or wasn't uh, fully understood, suddenly you had pain in there with it. It was like, this is a problem that we have to solve and we have to solve it right now. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned earlier about having a really great foundation of delivery and digital, our app, our Chick-fil-A One app a few years back. And so having the vision that was already there that we need to build out these systems, when the pain came on top of it, it just allowed us to elevate those channels for customers to be able to order mobily, to be able to have delivery, to be able to do curbside, mobile orders in the drive-through, et cetera. 
And so it, it just accelerated in so many ways, visions that different departments already had there. It just wasn't necessarily the time to go. And I think that's a really good principle that a lot of innovators have to become comfortable with that sometimes it's just not your time. And that doesn't mean that it's not a great innovation. It doesn't mean that it's not something that should happen. Mm -hmm. It's just not ready yet. And we use the term on the shelf a lot, that we will have innovations that are ready and on the shelf for the field, for our restaurants. But the pain has to get bad enough in the restaurant for them to want to pull that innovation. We can come up with things from a support center perspective that we're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And operators might be like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't need that right now. But fast forward eight months, 10 months or a crisis. And then suddenly we're ripping those innovations off the shelf and they're in super high demand. So I think that's something that whether it's in a crisis or at another time, as innovators, we might be able to see what the future could look like. And we might be able to articulate it to those around us. But until they fully realize the benefit they'll get or the pain that they'll relieve, then they aren't going to be ready for it. Absolutely. And you, you touched on something really important and that's the, you know, the notion of the vision and the pain as motivators. And a lot of times there are these visions, but to your point about, unless you have people that come along and buy into that vision, you know, you can almost deem that a hallucination. And I think there's a quote out there between the difference between a vision and hallucination is that, you know, other people believe in it. Um, but I think that kind of reminds me and brings me to, uh, the Ted video that I think if you had a chance to watch that the notion of a first follower movement and kind of how, one person's idea or one's person's vision, um, whether it's a person or it could be an innovation team, um, just like you mentioned, you know, operators may say that's not really a useful to me now, or that's not something that I can I can use today. But fa fast forward eight months, ten months, or a crisis, and all of a sudden that rapidly becomes clear that that's a solution that that they need. So thinking about that and kind of this this notion that some vision has to have a first follower, someone who comes along to kind of give that idea or that vision credibility, and then you see others, and then by the time others join, it all of a sudden becomes like just the de facto standard of like, we've got to get in on this. So have you had in your career, your experiences at, at Chick-fil-A, uh, an example of like what is a first follower mo movement or moment where you had either followed or you've had somebody come to your side to help lend credibility to advance a vision forward? Yes, absolutely. Uh, all the time. I think that any of the work that we have that will benefit one department only is not going to have the same kind of impact. So much is very the way that we're set up at Chick-fil-A, at least within the departments, we need to be so cross-functional. And so the more that we can collaborate and kind of build ourselves small teams where first followers are natural, and maybe it's like a set of followers where that collaboration, that group thinking to say, okay, if we could truly solve this problem, I'm in it right now. I'm leading a strategy group that's cross-functional to think about the inside of the restaurant, not necessarily dining, but the inside of the restaurant. What are we going to do with that space? Because consumers' needs are going to change, so exactly to what extent they're going to change. 
But when we think about the space, we think about mobile ordering, we think about third-party delivery picking up food, we think about ordering at the counter and wanting to dine in, we think about ordering at the counter and carrying out, truly understanding our customers and then building out a strategy that's going to serve the customers and the operators and growing the business and be something that is meaningful for team members is critical. So I'm approaching it from the beginning of getting feedback from the very beginning. I feel like the more that we can have each other's fingerprints on work from the start, Mm -hmm. the better it's going to be in the end and the smoother it's going to move through. So when you come up with something in a vacuum and you're like, oh, I have this great vision, this great idea. Now I'm going to tell it to you. Um, it doesn't work quite the same as when I can say, here's something I'm thinking about. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I'd love for you to help me make it better. And then suddenly, instead of like being the guy who gets up and himself, you kind of like shuffle over and are like, hey, you want to get up and dance with me? Like, what dance do you think we should do? And then suddenly you're kind of creating this group dance from the very start. And so personally, I have found my ideas in a vacuum are not nearly as good as when I can have eight other people, four other people at a table saying like, this is unclear. I think this is actually the problem. I think we should do this and this. Suddenly the output of what you're going to get is robust. And again, everyone's been a part of it. And so you get that group rallying behind it so that it can, it can move through the process a lot better. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes it makes a ton of sense. And I think you're right. Getting that buy in um, from others and adding, you know, people's ideas so they become part of that story as well. And they get skin in the game is is essential to, to moving something forward that uh, it is required. So it's fantastic to think about the other cool innovation story that we always like. And we see examples of this now, especially with COVID is like you mentioned, there may be an idea that was put on the shelf. And it, the timing wasn't right. But now all of a sudden, the circumstances change and the timing is exactly right. And so we think back about the, the story of Tang. And, and Tang was uh, you know, a product that had been out there. But then all of a sudden, they, NASA used it to kind of flavor up the, the purified water that the astronauts were drinking. And all of a sudden, it kind of became kind of cool and really neat. And then everybody saw that. And of course, all the kids wanted to be like astronauts. And, and so they started uh, drinking tame, Tang and kind of launched it to its popular success. So how do you kind of tap in to, uh, to themes like that where you may have an idea or a concept that, that either the timing's not right or it's just not as cool in context, but then all of a sudden something changes either from a business perspective or culturally that you're able to tap into something that just really um, meshes well and allows you know, innovation to, to really take off. Have you had an experience or examples like that? Yes. I love that story about Tang. I didn't realize that. And I think it it goes back a bit to what we were talking about earlier that sometimes there's going to be things that you just have to be patient with. And as an innovator, that can be frustrating. I'm sure for, you know, those that created Tang, I don't know. I just played it out in my mind. They're like, seriously, you know, like it takes an astronaut to make this popular. Like we've been drinking this so long. And that's how sometimes we feel inside because when we're at the top of a mountain and we can see that preferred vision, we see exactly what it is. A lot of times the rest of everybody is down staring at the rocks and they're like, we don't know, beautiful? Like, we don't know what you're talking about. And so 
I think that understanding that, stretching out the timeline to go, okay, it's, it will happen over time. Um, it goes back at Chick-fil-A to what we call on the shelf and putting innovations on the shelf so that they're ready to roll. And um, they might not be they might be stuck in a certain phase in the innovation. It could get shut down. I've led work that, you know, you're going hard for, and then it's just like cut off. But um, when we put those concepts on the shelf and something comes along like an astronaut, who's going to make your Tang product popular, you're confident and you're ready. And so one of those examples in COVID relates to curbside. So you've probably recognized at some of our restaurants, we have a few that parking spaces that are dedicated to curbside ordering. You order on your phone, you pull into the spot most of the time because you look at the drive-through line and you're like, I'm going to beat that line. That's right. And I'm going to get into the curbside <laughs> spot. And then you probably watch that line if you're yes. like me and you're like black Yukon. If I don't get my food before the black Yukon, like, mm, like I didn't win. But so we know that we know that about our customers but um what happened was suddenly we had empty parking lots because we had to close our dining rooms or we chose to close our dining rooms based on the time the season and the local municipalities and so we went hmm let's see here low low resolution will be okay let's get some home depot buckets pour a little concrete in put some nice looking signs and suddenly you have a parking lot full of curbside spots. Mm -hmm. And so the concept was mostly there, but it wasn't something that was broad and uh, the largest channel by any means. Well, now you can't go in the restaurant. That's going to be a major channel for distribution. And it grew exponentially overnight. So Definitely, we've had those seasons, whether it's something that's out there a little bit, but it's not popular yet, or it hasn't even made it out there, but it's just been sitting on the shelf ready to go. And I think it's important as organizations that whether it's a research and development function or it's somebody's job to be thinking way out, Mm -hmm. because way out is going to come sooner than we think in some areas. And if we're already thinking that way, we're we're going to naturally incorporate it into the innovations that we're rolling and launching right now. Um, then that's going to be really critical and really important, so that it does keep us at an advantage and it does keep us very future thinking, and it we don't get caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, that's true. Gotcha. All right. So. Uh, let's move on to more of the general business track questions. Um, you, I don't, I, I, how many hours a day do you have? Uh, it, it's phenomenal to listen to you talk about, uh, you know, the, the projects that you're working on. So um, your approach to creating strategy, what does that look like? That's a secret. <laughs> can't tell you that right. so, so i would say a few things one is knowing the customer and knowing the problem and so the more we truly know who it is that we're designing for and we're clear about who we are serving the better from a strategy standpoint the more that we know that customer we also know the pain points and there's a difference between a, a real pain point and like a felt pain 
or like a perceived pain point and a felt pain point. Like what are the pains that they really feel that they really want to have solved? Again, if I just sit by myself and I'm like, I think what they want is, and I can spend a ton of time and create this great plan. And they'll be like, I don't care about that. (laughs) So really knowing is it, it might be the customer as in like our Chick-fil-A customer or the customer might be team members. What is that worst job? Like if I could make one job better for you, what would it be? So truly knowing who the customer is. And then, um, you know, I think that strategy is an interesting thing, at least it in groups where I spend a lot of time having conversations, there can be like 10 different definitions for strategy and none of them are really wrong. But the way that I think about strategy, I mentioned at the beginning is it's how to win. And so if you know the identity of your business, your vision, your mission, your your purpose and your values, then out of that are going to come a series of uh, what's and how's. So what do we need to do? How do we win at that? What do we need to do? How do we win at that? And basically those are strategies and tactics that flow through the entire organization and all of them should be able to ladder back up to the top. So when I think about strategy, I think, how do you win? And then the tactics are, what do we need to do? And then, so what we need to do now, how do you win at that? And then what do you need to do? And making sure that those are all aligned and they don't go rogue and go somewhere else that doesn't you know, create value to where the organization's identity and focus and vision is, is really critical. And then the other thing that I've been really inspired this past year is um, a group DARPA. I did not know about DARPA until a year ago. And you guys probably know about DARPA because you know about Tang and you know <laughs> about like where carbonated water came from. And someone, you know, I like they they were, they discovered oxygen. Like that kind of blows my mind that someone can discover oxygen. Cause right. I don't know. It's I just there. Really right? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it had to do with mice. It, 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 no, it's just a little weird, but we don't want to know that. Yeah. But yeah, tell us cool. about this. What, what's this group DARPA thing? Yeah. Okay, so DARPA is a government organization that their whole mission, if I could say it like super concisely, and they wouldn't necessarily say it this way, but their mission is to never be caught off guard. Mm -hmm. And here's what happened. If you remember, uh, forgetting the year it happened, but when Sputnik was launched into outer space by the Soviet Union, the United States was like, aw, snap. Like we did not see that coming. And this organization was started, our president at the time, I believe the story is that he gave funding and said, we need a group who will help us never be caught off guard again. And so DARPA is the group that said, we need to accelerate funding and create the internet. We need to accelerate funding. And they are the ones, I was just reading a book about artificial intelligence. And it was talking about DARPA has given like direction um, and autonomous vehicles, actually. I think it was more about autonomous vehicles. That they're like, we need to help figure this out. And so their focus is never be caught off guard. What are those things that are problems to solve or opportunities to have that we could realize And then how do we get ourselves thinking farther out into the future? So when I think about strategy, I think about who's the customer and what's their problem. 
and what's their greatest problem. And then um, thinking about never being caught off guard and how can we think that way, broaden our thinking, stretch ourselves. What are we not thinking about? What if blank? And that's where the uh, Warren Burger's question comes in really well. Like, what if this happened? What if people didn't blank anymore? Like run these different solutions or, or not solutions, but like um, kind of scenarios in your mind. And then it, again, it kind of puts your thinking where you're in a place where you're always ready to be prepared for what could come next. And um, it allows you to be more grounded. It allows you to be more stable feeling. And I think it also allows you to be more flexible because it guarantees in the way you're thinking, it guarantees that tomorrow won't be the same as today, that there will be change, that things will evolve and, and grow and be disrupted and that that's okay. And that's actually really beautiful, but we have to be willing and able to truly lean into it. Awesome. Awesome. That was so fun. I, I, um, I'm going to have to look into that. Do you, do you remember the book about the autonomous vehicles? Yes. I'll send it to you. It was, okay, that's um, cool. yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah, there, no problem. there is you. a lot of cool projects that come out of uh, of DARPA. And it's really interesting about innovation because they find people that have these crazy ideas. They give them, just like you mentioned, Elizabeth, give them funding. And some of these ideas, you know, a lot of them end up like most innovations in the waste bin or pivot to something else. But there's some really powerful, um, uh, you know, outcomes that have been a result direct result or an indirect result of some of the research that goes on there but yeah it'll make your like you said it'll make your head explode when you start looking at what some groups and, and this is like some of the stuff you can actually read about right that's public <laughs> but it's like yeah, what exactly. some of the things they're working on is just like blows your mind <laughs> it is it is yeah very cool um so speaking of that kind of uh, the cool thing about DARPA and other um, uh, agencies or groups responsible for strategy is exactly like you said, is like, think about what will the world look like at some point in the future. And, and even if it's not saying this specifically, it's like, here are scenarios in which the future may look. And then let's think about how we fit into those future scenarios um, or where we are, where we're going. So a big part of that is, um, is not only knowing where you're going, but then you, there's certain things that, you know, and this is going to sound very Donald Rumsfeldian, but it's, it's you know, we have like known knowns. There's things that we know will happen, but then there's also, we have these known unknowns. So Elizabeth, that's kind of the question that we want to kind of wrap up with you is, is from your position as you think about the future and what different versions of the future may hold, what is the one thing that you're you don't have the answer to, but you're positive or you're just tracking to see what will the future unfold around a specific item. So what's kind of like the biggest known unknown that that you and, and possibly the rest of your team are really thinking about trying to answer or understand better? So it's a broad one, yeah. but the thing I'm thinking about most and wondering most is around consumer needs and expectations. And I'll give you an example. Last week, our UPS driver, we were talking out in the front yard, which is so cool because when did I ever get to talk to my UPS driver before? But now we're friends. And I asked him how he's doing. And he said, we're still at Christmas volume. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. thought, 
wow, that's interesting. Like the, the needs, expectations, the, um, the volume of delivery has gone to the point of the highest point in the year, which was known as Christmas volume. And now that's just been steady. And so when I think about the element of convenience, will it maintain at that level or do we deeply inside want to go back out? Um, consumer needs and expectations specifically for restaurants is ultimately where my mind goes. And how important is the location? Are we going to locations? Do we want the food to come to us? Do we dine in? Why do we dine in? What's the role of eating? I mean, we know the role of food is to get sustenance in our bodies, to make us healthy, or give us comfort. But like, what's the role of eating and where you eat it and when you eat it and who you eat it with? Um, there's an entire unknown. Is it functional? Is it social? I think as humans, I've noticed how much we love and value um, kind of ceremony and closure for things. I think we grieved when the seniors in high school or the seniors in college couldn't walk across a stage and graduate. And I don't know that we quite realize how valuable those ceremonies and those moments are at a public setting and in a, in a social way. And so when you think about that related to food, what's going to happen and what are we going to want? What are we going to need? And what are we going to expect? And I think that's the known unknown. Like we know there will be expectations. We know that there will be needs, but it's unknown exactly what those are going to look like. And at what point the tipping point will happen and we will have what so many call a new normal. And I think by that, it just means having a predictable way of life that may be different than it was in the past. I don't know that it's going to be bad or better. It's just going to be different and we'll be able to embrace it in that way. So that is my known unknown. Boy, you have me pondering. You have me pondering so much, um, thinking about that because you you are absolutely right. In 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 many cases, trying to think about where your customer is at is something you could spend all day doing. But then, to your point, you may think or go down a trail that you think makes a lot of sense. So it's just that constant interaction of like trying to read the tea leaves, understand where they're going, talk to them, see if it makes sense. Um, and that's the good news is there's always going to be things to do and to talk about re re related to innovation, that constant change, if you will, creates so many different opportunities. Um, and I'm kind of left with the thought of when you tie it all back to strategy of like, how do you win? And so our listeners, whether, you know, they're, they're helping drive strategy for, for companies like Chick-fil-A or for UPS or whatever their business is, you know, thinking about that, how do you win in this very dynamic environment where expectations are changing? You don't necessarily understand. So this conversation has been extremely um, enlightening. It's also, you've, brought up a lot of good questions and a lot of good things for, for our audience to, to think about. So uh, before we wrap up, um, I'll, I'll check in to see if you have any last thoughts um, or, or comments. Um, and then uh, Colleen, if you have any last questions to you want to ask Elizabeth, but um, this has been fantastic. Well, I think my final encouragement would be for those that have ideas that they see that haven't fully come to existence yet, or especially those that have ideas that they see that 
others haven't bought into yet, like keep going and keep giving, putting yourself out there, give something for people to react to, elevate the pain so that they can feel how this is going to make their lives better. Because, you know, 20 years ago, I would have never been able to articulate on demand. And now I binge watch on the weekends, you know, like the world needs the innovation that you have in your mind. So keep going, don't be discouraged. And then find those people who can help come alongside, put their fingerprints on it, make it better, and ultimately make the world better because we can all find ways to add more value to help each other out. That's right. Oh, Elizabeth, you really know your stuff um, and just so fun to talk with. I really, really appreciate your zest and, and just the energy that you bring to these conversations. And of course, always the book titles. I forgot that uh, you, 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 a bevy of those. So um, really, we look forward to having you back. Um, oh, we'd love to have you back. This has been really enjoyable. And um just keep bringing it. We're, I, I do need to go and get my lemonades in the afternoon. I, you know, I, I, the, the quick pivots that you all are doing out there um, to meet the needs are really, I, I think, so just admirable. And, and just the way that you're going uh, through innovation methodically within your organization. Keep doing that because sometimes when we talk to, not so much here on the, on this podcast, uh, but we talk to other companies, they, they really they kind of maybe flounder that whole thing about sideways energy. We need to write a book on that. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Well, I've, I have like created it. I have, you know, been a victim of it. Like, it's happen <laughs> anywhere. And sometimes you just have to like call it like it is. And one other thing I think, thank you for your compliments about Chick-fil-A. Our founder used to say from the very beginning, he said, we're in the people business and we just happen to sell chicken. And I think when that is central as a business of like, what are we for? What are we about? It helps making some of those decisions a whole lot easier. It cuts the clutter. It cuts the sideways energy to say, okay, we're in the people business. We need to take care of our people. And how do we need to do that in this season right now is really critical. Mm Excellent. Well, thank you so very much and keep enjoying your bubbly and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. And that's right. (laughs) And for our audience who wants to learn more about Elizabeth Dixon, I highly recommend uh, her website, elizabethdixonspeaks.com. And that's elizabethdixon, D-I-X-O-N, speaks.com. And uh, check out the article, Five Principles to Get Where You Want to Be. Fantastic read. It's only four minutes, but it's got a lot of great nuggets for innovators. Elizabeth, I want to say thank you very much for joining us and have a wonderful day. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Holy moly, Colleen. That was just a fascinating discussion with Elizabeth Dixon. So much to learn from, not only about innovation, but obviously innovation on the front lines of being an industry that has just been, you know, rocked by by COVID and the implications of that. Yeah. And I have to say, I do participate in getting out of the house every once in a while and picking up things from restaurants and stores and whatever. But I am always just amazed. I want to understand when I see these companies, you know, pulling into, you know, when you pull into like the um, the parking lot, how they've staged the, the businesses. And I mean, with a company the size of Chick-fil-A, oh my goodness, like what a job. But um, how else are they going to, you know, get the goods out 
out the door and, and I think they're doing it really well. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting, especially when you listen to her about what was driving them to get through the crisis planning and then the execution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I think was really interesting too, is that she mentioned that, you know, it is important that you have people that are tasked with monitoring the future, trying to predict the future to know essentially where is the puck going to be and where you're going to skate to it. But she says that that future will come faster than you can think ever think possible. And, and having innovations on the shelf. So she touched on, you know, this, this notion that, Hey, we think it's an idea that people don't want to wait in the drive up. So they'll just order on their phone and they can pick up in the parking lot that might save them time. And, but at the time it wasn't a huge priority. And then all of a sudden you hit a world where that's the only way possible other than the drive up. And now you have this great big empty parking lot. So taking these innovations, plugging them in and then amplifying them is, uh, and doing so in a matter of literally like 30 days. It's, it's just incredible. Um, the story that she, she told. Yeah. 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 And I really liked, um, her take on vision and the pain, um, and to really, uh, to win more with the winning strategy, of course. But I think, uh, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about this whole vision thing and, you know, getting people on your side uh, with the vision. We we were talking a little bit on the side, Corey, you and I, about how sometimes people you can protect your ideas, especially early on in like an innovation career. And it's like, oh, this is such a good idea. I'm going to I'm going to ha- I'm going to protect it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think she's doing the right thing and, and just really want to bring this up that if you're finding yourself within your organization or as a startup, and you're not getting buy-in on your vision, how many fingerprints, as she said, how many fingerprints are on that that build-out, on the vision? Um, you can't create in a vacuum and really expect it to take off because if you hide it, it, it just won't it won't get the lift off. So what are your thoughts on that? I think you're, I think you're right. I think that there is um, a natural tension between wanting to protect an idea, whether that's protection, so other competitors or companies don't get wind of it or protection protecting it so it doesn't get stomped on early on and it's you know it's 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 infancy but at the same time you have to open that idea up to others to help them you know like you mentioned get their fingerprints on it get buy-in so it becomes a shared vision and if it's a shared vision you're going to be able to drive uh, to success but i think that is probably more of the art than the science of innovation and uh, and i think elizabeth she does a very good job and what uh, struck me is obviously she's a very good speaker and a very good storyteller so i think that being able to manage uh an idea through the infancy and through the incubation, but finding strategically where you can get those first followers is is really very much an you know an art you know in, of a innovation practitioner, if you will, especially within corporate entities. So very very um, very interesting concept to think about how people manage the tension between protecting an idea, but then also giving some of that idea away to others so they can buy in into that concept. Yeah, and we think just as simple as um, a um, thirty-minute uh, elevator pitch. You know, th- those kinds of things. If you can summarize really what the vision is, you have to put time into that, right? To be able to get to that point where you can articulate it and start socializing it. Um, I, I just, I, I think people underestimate the time and energy that you need to put into this or else your ideas probably aren't going to get very far. Um, 
I have learned that. That's just the school of hard knocks talking. Um, yes. So, and Elizabeth, um, you know, her- oh, I'm sorry to, inter- I was sorry to interrupt clean, but I think you're right. Cause Elizabeth yeah. did touch on that when, when she said, you know, what are your last thoughts? You know, I think she left the audience with that notion of, of, you know, don't give up, you know, in the sense that you bring something yeah. new, it will be hard. It will be difficult. You're going to run into challenges. Don't give up, stick with it. And that is hard to do. But it's sound advice, much like you were saying, is is if you've gotten stepped on or how ideas squashed, it's easy to kind of throw in the towel. But that's where you got to drive, you know, pull that passion and that perseverance. But it's hard, like you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. And I think you have to have the right people around you, too, to support, support that and actually to kind of advise you like you're hiding this this idea. Yeah. You know, maybe somebody kind of pushed you, you know, out into the in, in, into uh into like sharing mode, I guess. So, um, there's a number of books that I want to, uh, add to my Kindle, uh, lineup, um, founders mentality. I thought that was awesome. How she was talking about, you know, like what things just absolutely shouldn't change in an organization. And, um, you know, I just think that people maybe should even stop like for a second and think about that. Like, do we know, I mean, I, I think we know, but um, because we have had people who have really pushed it, we have a very unique culture and um, and our product set. But I could see where some companies might not be doing that, right? And so building those guardrails mm-hmm. um, so that you don't then flow into this sideways energy, right? Where right. like you're not moving forward. It's like sideways inertia. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. It's like a, in my head, I was like, it was like a typewriter that just wouldn't end like yes. those old fashioned typewriters that it just like wouldn't advance to the next line. Um, I think you're, uh, I, I love that when she kind of named that a sideways energy. And I, I know um, both you and I, like our eyes kind of like perked at that notion because we, we have experienced it. Um, what did you think about, you know, some of the, the, the concepts that she had about how to try to break through that sideways energy? Did anything struck you um, that she mentioned that that was really beneficial in, in not only just yeah. like identifying it, but getting through it? Yeah, I think um, that that thoughtful intentionalness of cutting through the crap, I think was kind of her, her point was somebody just has to call it. Mm-hmm. If, if, if we're not advancing, if we're not moving forward, if we're not winning more, like, what are we doing? Right. And um, I love it. I'm totally bringing this back. You and I need to bring this term back because you, I mean, it's almost like, you know, like back in the. Yeah, like two, early 2000s, you know, in meetings and stuff, they would be like, let's put it in the parking lot. Remember that? That's right. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have a now we have a term for this sideways energy. It's like mm-hmm. that is just um, nobody's got time for sideways energy. Yeah. I feel like that should be a that should be a meme. Absolutely. And, and yeah, don't, not today. <laughs> we don't have time for sideways energy. Not today. <laughs> not um, today. But you're right. And, and Elizabeth, she started off, uh, you know, our discussion too. She, she used the, the quote from Lou Holtz that, you know, either you're growing or you're dying. And I think that's a, a great, you know, uh, point about sideways energy, just like you just said, which is, you know, if, if it's sideways, is that doing anything? Is, are you, you're, you're, you know, you're nothing. It's just, it's in between. So how do you translate that into growth? Absolutely. You know, um, that whole competing against ourselves. Yeah. Right. Uh, notion as well. Right. So I think if you really can challenge without being overbearing, I mean, sometimes that, that, that personality can kind of suck the 
the goodness out of a room to 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 get anything done if if you have somebody just yammering on and hammering about um I don't know I think there's like a way to go overboard but I think if you have a culture where you do challenge yourselves to compete against yourself and ask those what questions um that I think could um, suss out some of that sideways energy, uh, kind of methodically. But I, I, I do see like every group needs that person. Every innovation team needs that that personality. You know, like that character who can see both sides, but knows not to waste time and can articulate and say, "Hey, we got to move on. Put that in the parking lot." Yes. That's right. That's right. And and to your point, just just being aware of that point, you know, there's value in just, you know, to your point, naming it or just making bring it to the group's attention. Like, is this sideways energy? You know, is that where we're at or how is this? How do we get past this? How do we move forward or how do we how do we die? How do we shut this down? If but just staying inside his energy is 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 not a not a good place to be, especially if you yeah. want to achieve results. And as she said, you know, her definition of strategy is just how do we win, you know, better and more effectively. So, um, yeah. How about this? Uh, the importance of dads. I'm going to yes. keep bringing this up when I see it. And um, again, we've had somebody talking about my dad once told me so. Dads, first of all tune in. You are so important. But also I think these, I'm going to have to put this plug in there. Like it, um, I'm sure there's a ton of mom stories too, but as moms, a, working professional women, right. As we have these opportunities, like, you know, we will also become those, those advisors too. Um, but I just totally see that these, um, these trusted advisor, you know, family members um, really, have something to do with, I think, the intentionality of some of these innovative minds that we brought on here. What, what are your thoughts here? Because you are. Yeah, I, I think you're 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 right. It does humble me just a little bit as being a you know the the dad of two girls, thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I've got so much, so much you know work to do to to mentor them. But I, I think it's really cool. Um, to your point, you know, whether it's moms or dads, I think that the impact that you can have throughout the life of your, your children, um, it is very important, but it's also not just, you know, when you're raising them, obviously that's a major part, but think about Elizabeth, even going back to her dad, you know, in a professional career, she's very successful, has had a lot of success yet. She'll still go back to her dad. And I think that just points to a bigger picture for people to develop mentorships and strong relationships where you can take a step back and, and bring, issues or challenges to talk them through or get advice and seek advice. So, um, but you're right. There is a, there is a common theme. Um, and those themes are, you know, not only initial inspiration, like we've heard with some past guests that they've helped inspire them to do really cool, innovative things, but then also in that journey and in that path, how they can get guidance along the way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and not only that too, I think what's interesting too is, is Elizabeth touched on the fact that, you know, her dad advised her to observe, to listen, to write things down. And then the next time there's, you know, a crisis or a situation like that, to go back and and use those lessons that you learn. I thought that was really, really powerful is sometimes in the moment you may just be reactionary, but that is a wonderful time to collect your thoughts, your observations, your emotions, get those down so that the next time you experience a situation like that, you are able to fall back and, and have that experience and those notes to help guide you through it. 
I'm so happy you picked that up because that was a little nuanced, you know, but um, it's those little things that can make a big difference. And I mean, I, she has a great mind and it has to come from some of that intentional, you know, observation and taking notes so that, you know, we'll be ready for the next time. But I mean, if she's doing it there, she's got to be doing it in other ways or, you know, in other, other places to, to, uh, to observe and, those those things I think are the game changers in, in people's careers. That if they really are doing things like that, I mean, there's really nothing that they can't figure out because they, they put the time and the effort into noticing x plus y equals what. Mm-hmm. If you've done, you know, like I've done this before. This group has done this. This this has happened. This was the result. Maybe we don't do that again. Or I'm starting to see this kind of thing happen. So, so that time spent reflecting. Um, I know my boss is big on, you know, like that that self self reflection once a once a week, like actually writing down the, the big trends that they've noticed. And I think that's that attributed contributed to his success too, because when you are in it, it is easy just to keep barreling through the week. But if you don't protect your time and do those small things. Um, you know, those are game changers, I just think. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm probably, you know, to your point, I hope our listeners can draw some of the same insights that, that we're drawing. And I'm guilty of that too, of, you know, just be go, you know, go, 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 execute, 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 that you don't have that opportunity to, to step back, observe, and most importantly, just note what your observations are. And then at some point going back and just reading those. And I thought what was cool, um, that Elizabeth mentioned as well that I took away was to, to she mentioned documenting the successes as well as the failures, like what really worked well and then also what yeah. didn't work, you know, in these times of crisis or, or in, you know, say not new normal uh, scenarios. So I thought that that was uh, some great, great, and she called, I think, um, used the word wisdom bombs, but I would classify those as she was dropping some great wisdom bombs uh, on our on us and our listeners. Yeah, I can't wait to have her back. That's we'll find right. out another topic, and and she can, I just take our breaths away again. I'm, I'm sure right. she'll be able to. We got to have her dad on too. Maybe, that, oh, maybe that's what we can do. There you go. I like that. That's a great idea. So so innovation in practice on the innovation social hour. So we look forward. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our discussion with Elizabeth Dixon of Chick Fil A. Again, you can check more information out about her at elizabethdixonspeaks.com. dot com.